As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. While conducting our research on the recent bank failures around the world, we were lucky enough to consult with Jean-Edouard Colliard, who was a financial regulation professor from HEC Paris and a former economics policy advisor for the European Central Bank. We discussed everything from state-run banks to how much regulation is too much regulation and what we would have done differently if we were put in charge of these banks. Enjoy. We're here with John Edouard, who's going to help us shed some light on the situation in banking right as it's, it's very much unfolding. And we're very lucky uh, to have him here because he knows better than others and better than most people in the world what is really going on behind the scenes. Um, but before we start asking you the hard-hitting questions, I think it would be great if you could just give us uh, a bit of an introduction to your background uh, and what you, uh, what you bring to the table in terms of an understanding of what's going on here. Okay. Hi, so my name is Jean-Edouard Colliard. I'm a professor of finance at HEC Paris in France. Um, I'm a researcher in banking in particular, so most of my work is in banking regulation. I try to understand why we should regulate banks, how we should regulate them, why sometimes they fail, what we can do about it, why it's such a bad thing. And I try to explain this to my students, to companies, to regulators. I try to you know, meet with regulators and help them design new regulations. I, you know, I started my career at the European Central Bank, so I also have some regulatory experience myself. And so, yeah, the objective is to better understand those things so as to, you know, have better banks and uh, better regulations. Now, uh, obviously, the topic on everyone's mind is the three large bank failures that have just occurred in the U.S., um, with reports coming out of Europe that some other banks might be uh, in trouble. In your very educated opinion, were there any red flags or things that could have been done differently to avoid uh, what's currently unfolding? Um, that's a good question. So whenever a bank fails, you know, there is always the same question of, you know, could we have seen this coming? Should we be surprised? And, you know, uh, should, could supervisors have done a better job and so on? And, and very often the answer is, is yes. I mean, what is surprising is to, to what extent Many bank failures seem to be very predictable, uh, exposed. In in this case, I think you know myself and a lot of my colleagues who are surprised that this is a type of bank failure that is almost textbook, so to speak. Right. So we have models of bank runs, for instance, that are very very close to what happened with uh, Silicon Valley Bank. So in those typical you know situations, what we have is a bank that has a lot of deposits. On the liability side, it turns out, and that's quite specific to Silicon Valley Bank, that a lot of these deposits were uninsured, meaning that you know if the bank fails in principle, you lose the money you have at the bank. And on the asset side, so they had a lot of bonds that lost value when interest rates increased, and they also had a lot of loans, loans to you know startups, loans to VC companies, and so on. And loans, bank loans are very illiquid, right? So if the big issue is that if you have your depositors and they want to withdraw their money, many of them want to withdraw their money at the same time, then you have to liquidate some of these loans. These loans are very illiquid. It's very difficult to sell them in a short amount of time. And then if you start selling, you know, you accumulate losses up to a point where your solvency is actually no longer guaranteed, and then the depositors are going to panic and think, but now, you know, actually the bank does not even have enough money to reimburse me, so I should, you know, run to the bank and withdraw my money as fast as I can before the others do. If everybody does that, then obviously the bank is going to fail because it's going to lose all of its funding. It cannot liquidate its assets to serve everybody, and so then the bank uh, goes uh, belly up, basically, and that's exactly what happened to Silicon Valley Bank, okay? And so exposed, so, you know, this really corresponds to, you know, very old models of bank runs that we have, like, you know, it's really banking uh, 101 thing. And even the, um, even, you know, the risk that Silicon Valley Bank was taking, so even this idea that you have a lot of bonds and when interest rates increase, the value of these bonds 
decreases while simultaneously your depositors ask for higher interest rates. This is, you know, interest rate risk. This is also banking 101. This is the reason why the savings and loans failed in the 80s, which was a very big banking crisis in the US. This is one of the first things I teach in my course in, on economics of financial regulation at HEC. So, yeah, you would think that, uh, that people should have seen this coming. And so I think that's one of the interesting questions to ask about this crisis, actually. How comes that banking supervision authorities, you know, did not see that this was a possibility? Now, I want to um, talk specifically about those mechanisms because um, from a certain perspective, uh, Silicon Valley Bank in particular uh, would have been seen as uh, very safe credit risk-wise because a majority of their assets were held in government treasuries, which are, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in many finance circles considered cash equivalents, you know, basically just as good as cash. Mm -hmm. um, now, was there something to be said and exactly how did taking almost such a, um, a conservative approach to keeping their assets actually work out to be uh, very, very risky, you know, as ultimately resulting in their failure? Yes, that, that's an excellent question. So, it's, so what you are asking is really what are the mechanics behind interest rate risk and why that's so problematic for a bank. So, you know, if you are an individual investor, right, so you just want to save for your retirement. If you invest a lot in long-term treasuries, say you plan to retire in I don't know, 20 years and you invest a lot in 20-year treasuries, this is indeed the safest thing you can do, okay? Because you are promised a certain repayment in the future. These treasuries are going to be repaid. You are going to get exactly the amount you were promised, okay? It's possible that before you retire, interest rates increase. This is going to lead to a repricing of these treasuries that you bought. So you are going to make, you know, paper loss, so to speak. But at the end of the day, you are still going to get exactly the amount you thought you would have for your retirement. So it's indeed entirely safe, okay? Now, what's important in this example is that I assume you are, you know, a retail investor saving for your retirement. So basically, you know, you are funded with your own money, with, with, with equity, so to speak, okay? Now, a bank, it's a very different animal because a bank, most of the funding comes from deposits. So this is short-term funding, okay? So the bank is not investing the money of the shareholders. It's mostly investing the money of depositors. Depositors, they have on-demand deposits. They can withdraw their deposits whenever they want, okay? Because of this, they receive the short-term interest rate on their deposits, meaning that, you know, they always have the option of investing in the money market instead or going to another bank. So basically withdrawing their deposit and putting their money elsewhere. So if interest rates in the economy go up, they are going to ask for the bank to serve a higher interest rate on their own deposits. Okay. And that makes a huge difference because now if the bank invests a lot in treasuries, when interest rates increase, simultaneously the value of these treasuries is going to decrease, okay, which is normal. And at the same time, the depositors on the liability side are going to ask for higher and higher interest rates. At some point, actually, the bank, the bank with only treasuries might fail because the interests it has to serve to the depositors are actually higher than the revenues it gets from the treasuries. Okay. So for a bank, investing in treasuries in, you know, fixed rate securities in general is actually a very unsafe choice because you have this floating rate on the liability side. Okay. And so this is interest rate uh, risk, it's, it's very well known. And again, you know, in the 1980s, you had the savings and loans crisis in the US. The savings and loans crisis was almost the same crisis. So you had a period of inflation. The Federal Reserve increased interest rates a lot. Depositors wanted to get much higher interest rates from their banks. Those banks had a lot of fixed rate uh, assets. And so they were in the same position that SVB uh, was in, and a lot of them failed during that period for pretty much the same reason. Perfect. And that is really interesting because, um, again, you know, a typical person with, uh, you know, just kind of cursory knowledge of the subject would think, oh, well, you know, they were um, doing the safest thing they possibly could. Now, a lot of people have said one of the big failures of the bank was um, that they lacked certain uh, people in select positions, uh, chiefly risk, that probably could have seen 
these sorts of mistakes happening. Um, but say that we could reverse the clock six months, a year, and you got put in charge, you got appointed as the chief risk officer or you know, perhaps even the CEO, um, what would you do uh, with the cash that they had on hand? How would you allocate their capital to avoid uh, something like this happening? Right, so that's a good question. So how could we have avoided you know, this thing from happening in the first place? So the, the issue you know, with these fixed rate securities is that you know, at, when people start expecting that interest rates are going to increase, it's already too late, basically. So your, your securities are already repriced. You already have a lot of losses. So you need to change this you know, sufficiently early, basically, before this risk really materializes. So I think what should have happened if you could, you know, turn the clock back um, when, you know, people were still unsure about what the Fed would do, how it would fight inflation, how much interest rates would have to increase and so on. Basically, you know, as soon as you start thinking, well, you know, maybe interest rates are going to increase more than we thought in the future, that's when you should look at your balance sheet and think, oh, but, you know, I have all these uninsured deposits on the liability side. If interest rates increase, they are going to uh, cost me much more. On the asset side, I have all these fixed rate securities that are going to lose value. So I need to hedge, basically, this interest rate risk. Okay? So one possibility is, is for instance, to use derivatives. Okay? So you can enter uh, interest rate swaps, for instance, with other banks or with other financial institutions. And you can say, well, look, you know, I have all these fixed rate assets. I pay a floating rate. Why don't we enter a contract by which I give you the fixed rate and you give me the floating rate? Basically, you can enter a contract with another bank and the bank is going to, um, to insure you against an increase in interest rates. Okay? So that's hedging, basically. The problem with hedging is that, well, it's costly. Okay? So if you do that, it's not for free because the bank that is providing you with insurance, well, it's like an insurance company. It's going to ask you for an insurance premium to compensate for the risk that, uh, that is insured, right? So in risk management, you know, your role as a risk manager is to do that, is to you know, hedge the risks uh, that you can. In particular, these risks are so big that they can bring about the failure of the bank, but it's costly. So you know, if uh, the bank is a, big, is a bit reckless or if shareholders insist on having very high returns, you might you know, prefer to hope for the best, not hedge this risk, and, and hope that things are going to go right and that the interest rates are not going to increase. And very often, that's what we see, actually, that some risks are not hedged, even though, in principle, they could. Perfect. Now, I want to um, change, the, change the pace a little bit here. Obviously, there's a significant amount of blame uh, that can be leveled against, uh, you know, obviously, not just Silicon Valley Bank, but also um, the other two banks that have failed thus far. Um, and obviously, knock on wood, um, potentially banks that might fail uh, in the not-too-distant future. But there's also some level of blame uh, perhaps on the regulators. And I want to start with the Fed. Now, um, any sort of first-year economic student, when they're learning about uh, the role of a central bank, uh, one of their, their chief roles is the lender of last resort, where we're taught that uh, you know, the Fed in America or the European Central Bank or the RBA here in Australia are there to loan money to banks in distress so that there isn't a bank run uh, and it avoids this economic contagion or this fear getting through the system causing more bank runs. Uh, it stops it at the source. Why didn't they do that here? Right. Uh, okay, so it's about the lending of, of last resort function of central banks. So indeed, you know, since the 19th century, we know that you know, banks can fail for pure liquidity reasons and in order to avoid that, uh, you want the central bank to uh, to be ready to lend a lot to banks as is as is necessary. Okay, the the catch is that lending of last resort is supposed to mean that you lend to banks that are solvent uh, and they are just illiquid. Okay, the problem in reality is that it's very rare that we have banks that are in perfectly good shape. Their solvency is not at all in question. And just people become completely crazy and run on the bank. Okay, so this is a theoretical possibility, but we don't have a lot of examples of this happening, to be honest. Okay, so very often what happens is that the reason why 
depositors run on the bank is because it's no longer clear that the bank is solvent. On top of this, of course, if a lot of people run on the bank, endogenously, the bank might become insolvent. So at the end of the day, what this means is that the job of the central bank is very difficult because you need to you know, be the lender of last resort, but you need to lend to a bank only if it's solvent. But the reason why the bank is asking for help is, is because the depositors think that the bank is likely to be insolvent. So where do you put the threshold? So basically, in, in practice, you have this sort of gray area in which nobody is really sure you know, how solvent the bank really is. And the central bank has to take a decision, which is, okay, do I consider that this bank is solvent? I lend to the bank, typically, you know, at a penalty rate and asking for a lot of collateral. Or I consider that actually, if I lend to the bank, this is a very bad use of public funds because the bank is already insolvent. And then my job is not to lend to the bank. It's to make sure that the regulatory authority is going to uh, basically you know, close the bank and resolve it in the best way it can. And you know, all these decisions have to happen very, very quickly because runs, you know, happen in a matter of hours or, you know, days at most. So you don't have a lot of time to collect information, make sure whether the bank is solvent and so on. So, uh, yes, yeah, so it can typically go, uh, go either way. This depends a lot on how much information the central bank has about the bank, which depends also on whether the central bank is also the banking supervisor of this bank. So do they get a lot of supervisory information? that make them confident that the bank is solvent. So for instance, the Swiss National Bank you know, acted as a lender of last resort with Credit Suisse, probably because they thought that Credit Suisse was actually uh, solvent, whereas the Fed you know, did not act as a lender of last resort for uh, SVB, either because they thought it was not solvent or because they did not have the time because the run just happened too, uh, too suddenly. That's, uh, that's interesting. And um... Certainly, uh, it was great insight on, you know, that, that snap decision that needs to be made. Now, uh, sort of a two-part question to follow up on that. Do you think maybe they should take a more, um, you know, uh, you know let, let's just uh, err on the side of caution and, and give loans of last resort, uh, given the risk for it to snowball into something much larger than, let's say, an individual isolated bank? Sure, maybe they might, um, you know, lose some money. Um, but, you know, in the case of something like SVB, they, they did have, you know, a lot of collateral, a lot of very, very safe uh, securities to, um, to use as a deposit for um, a loan if that was what they were looking for. Um, and on top of that, I suppose, more of a, uh, you know, <laughs> a hypothetical question. Do you actually think, you know, uh, the, the night when the news was breaking that Jerome Powell was sitting in Washington kind of umming and ahhing whether to, to go ahead with it or not, or uh, were there sort of more formal mechanisms in place? Right. So the question is always, should you, you know, when you fear that the bank run at one particular bank is going to spread, is going to generate contagion, is going to generate a banking panic, should you keep, you know, the rules you already have in which it's, you know, possible all the, you know, all the banks that have access to the Federal Reserve in normal times, they can already access the discount window of the Federal Reserve and borrow from the Federal Reserve at a, at a high rate. So there is already a mechanism for this. But then, you know, if there is, if you fear a panic, you, you might, you know, take exceptional measures and say, no, you know, this is not sufficient. I need to show, you know, to the market that I'm ready to lend huge amounts at conditions that are actually uh, less penalizing for the banks and so on. And, and that's a bit the art of the central banker, I think, you know, to, to you, you clearly have a trade-off here that is, on the one hand, you don't want, you know, to create special conditions that are more favorable to banks each time there is some stress in the market because that's just going to reduce market discipline, basically, right? So if I'm a bank and I know that each time, you know, there is, um, there is stress on the market, the Fed is going to intervene and lend me a ton of money at very interesting rates and asking and being very generous with the, with the, the collateral it accepts, then my incentives to, uh, you know, manage my liquidity risk and make sure I don't need money from the central bank are reduced, okay? So this is going to generate a form of, of moral hazard. At the same time, of course, exposed, you know, once the problem is there, um, well, you can't let, you know, the entire banking system fail, so it's, it's too late, kind of, right? So you always have this trade-off between if you are tough, that's good, you know, for avoiding future banking crises, but you are going to worsen the current banking crisis. So where exactly do you put, you know, what is the decision you take depends on this trade-off. 
that's a very, very complicated trade-off, okay? And so I, 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 that's why, you know, personally, I don't want to be in the shoes of the governor of a central bank because you have to take these kind of decisions which are extremely, extremely difficult because ultimately it's about weighing the current stability of the financial system against the future stability of the financial system. And you need to find some kind of proper balance between the two. Bank, bail, uh, bank bailouts are never uh, particularly politically popular either, uh, just from an optics perspective. Now, there's uh, obviously another very important uh, government organization um, involved in securing banks, and in the US, that's the FDIC. Uh, now, they secure deposits. So, a simple question is, you know, why were people concerned in the case of these banks uh, about that if their if their deposits would be safe anyway? Right. So, indeed, you know, in so most retail depositors are insured anyway, right? So if they, the FDIC insures deposits in principle up to $250,000. So for people like you and me, probably, you know, we, we are safe. So our money at the bank is not at risk. But companies can have, you know, much bigger amounts that then are uninsured, okay? And so the thing is that in principle, there is a trade-off when you insure deposits. Uh, and so this is a trade-off that has always existed. So on the one hand, you could say, well, you know, if deposits are uninsured, there's going to be a lot of bank runs because depositors are going to react very, very strongly each time they see a signal that a bank might, might not be doing too well, okay? So that generated a lot of banking panics, for instance, in the early 1930s in the US, and that's why the FDIC was introduced. At the same time, if you insure, you know, all the depositors, even, you know, large and sophisticated ones, this is also an issue because now the bank has a lot of liabilities and these liabilities are all insured. So you have created a very strange company that has a lot of leverage, a lot of creditors, and these creditors, they are insured by someone else. So they no longer care about the risk that the bank is taking. Okay. So the trade-off to consider here is that you know, you don't want the bank to have too many uh, uh, uninsured deposits because otherwise it's going to be very fragile. It's going to be susceptible to bank runs. At the same time, you don't want the bank to rely too much on insured deposits because then, you know, it can take a lot of risk without any of the creditors uh, noticing what's happening or, or caring about what's happening, right? So you need to strike a balance between the two. In most countries, you have, you know, this idea that you have a certain threshold above which deposits are no longer insured. I think the idea is that, you know, we don't want to rely on small retail depositors and households, basically, to monitor the banking sector because it's just, you know, not their expertise. It should not fall on their shoulders. At the same time, you know, if you are a, a company of a significant size and, you know, you have a deposit of, uh, you know, even only a few million dollars at the bank, well, you are supposed to do treasury management. You are supposed to think about is the bank safe and so on, and to react if the bank uh, does bad things. So we would like to rely on these people to, um, to monitor what banks are doing, right? But there is always this trade-off. And then, of course, exposed once, you know, this system has failed in a sense and the bank was allowed to take too much risk and now it's close to being insolvent, then exposed, well, the best thing you can do is actually to insure all the depositors and to avoid, you know, a bank run or a banking panic but of course, this creates more hazard in the future because now, you know, if you see that when there is a significant banking crisis, all the depositors are insured, exposed, it means that in the future, if I'm an uninsured depositors and in principle, the FDIC is not supposed to repay me, I can expect that if something really bad happens, I'm going to be repaid anyway. So maybe my incentives, you know, to manage, to monitor the risk of the bank are not so, so strong, right? So it's exactly the same problem as before of, you know, ex ante, you would like the creditors of the bank to feel that they are uninsured and that they should be very, very careful when they put a lot of money in a bank. Ex post, you prefer, of course, to, um, to make them whole because otherwise this might actually trigger a lot of instability. So it's, you know, one of the main fundamental trade-offs in banking and banking regulation between ex ante and, uh, and ex post, basically. Now, to follow up on that, obviously, the decision was made um, in this particular case that all deposits would be covered anyway. And I have a feeling uh, the, the language of uh, 
the press release surrounding that decision uh, was very much that any other bank failures would also be covered to a sort of an unlimited amount of money. And, you know, there are reports of large banks having tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, particularly in SVB. Um, so is there an argument from a macroeconomics perspective that I could make where, you know, if I'm a, if I'm a startup, even a, a large company in Silicon Valley, my role in the economy is to add value through, you know, making the next uh, Amazon or Facebook. It's, you know, and researching and developing new technologies that could make the world a better place. My job is not to analyze, uh, you know, the financial markets to make sure where I'm kind of just keeping my uh, operating capital is safe. Is there an argument there that, look, for the good of uh, for the good of the economy, for the good of you know helping businesses in this sort of situation to take that risk off their plate, um, that uh, you know an unlimited insurance or at least a much higher uh, rate of insurance should be the standard going forward, since it's you know in this case already been done. Right. So that that's an excellent question. I think in general the question is whether you know. We should be in charge, basically, of monitoring the banks, right? So you could say, do you want a lot of depositors, maybe only the bigger ones, but you know, a lot of private sector agents to monitor what the banks are doing, or should it be the job of you know specialized regulators who delegate to them this this job, basically, right? And so, well, you know, economics is the science of of trade offs. So obviously, you know, there are pros and cons for both. The argument you made, I think, is correct that, you know, it would be nice to live in a world in which if, if you are, you know, a, a private agent or a private company, you have better things to do with your life than to monitor, you know, the risk taking of the bank because it's, it's very complicated. You might not have the expertise. You might not have the time. You might not have the information. So actually, that's for this reason that we have a lot of banking regulations and that we have bank supervisors. We delegate to them this task to a very large extent. Okay. So we tell them, look. Why don't you make sure that all the banks are safe? You make sure that they are well capitalized, that they don't take excessive risks. We give you the power to extract a lot of information from these banks to check whatever they are doing. And so we delegate this power to you and then we can feel that the banks are safe and we can you know, do our business without having to think about these, these possibilities, right? At the same time, you know, probably we don't want to rely well too much on that uh, either. There are also many issues with banking regulation, banking supervision. If you rely only, you know, on banking regulatory authorities, well, that's also pretty risky. Okay, so what if you give a lot of regulatory power to just, you know, one big regulator, and the regulator, you know, just does not see something coming for whatever reason? Well, then you are in a mess. Okay, so you want at the same time to have other people who have, you know, a view on the risks. And so you want, you want to have a more decentralized system as well, okay? I'm, I'm not sure that having, you know, delegating all this monitoring to the public sector and all this monitoring to regulatory authorities is necessarily a good idea. You probably need a mixed system in which, you know, the regulators do most of the job, but you also expect some private market participants to, you know, monitor what the bank is doing, to take care of those risks and so on. Where exactly do you put the threshold is not very clear, okay? Maybe you can expect this from very large and sophisticated companies that have sufficient economies of scale to be very sophisticated about their treasury management. Maybe you should not expect this from, you know, smaller companies and so on. So there is a debate about, you know, where quantitatively do you want to put, um, where quantitatively do you put the threshold? I think one thing which is definitely wrong, though, is to create uh, wrong expectations. So I think one issue is that we have re-regulated the banking sector a lot since the global financial crisis. Well, there was a bit of deregulation in the US recently, but you know, by and large, regulations are much tougher than they were before 2008. And we have given a lot more power to regulation authorities. So one possibility is that you know, we created this perception among market participants that now you know, all these monitoring uh, tasks were delegated to regulatory authorities and that there was zero responsibility remaining for you know, private agents in monitoring what their banks are doing. And, and, and maybe this was wrong, actually. Okay? I think there, there needs to be a lot of clarity on how much, you know, um, uh, how much responsibility goes to the regulatory sector for ensuring that banks are safe and how much responsibility goes to private creditors 
and private market participants to ensure that they don't invest in uh, in risky banks. And, and probably the expectations on this were, were probably not aligned uh, with reality. And some market participants felt that, you know, the bank was fully protected by bank supervision and banking regulation, whereas actually the level of safety was perhaps not that high. Now, just for fun, I'm going to give you a very unfun job, a very unfun hypothetical. Say tomorrow you were made you know, chairman of the FDIC. <laughs> uh, at the moment, two hundred. I, I understand what you're saying, but $250,000, um, obviously that's a fair amount of money for any individual to have. Um, but, you know, there are certainly very small very unsophisticated uh, businesses, you know, we're talking about, you know, your sort of local machine shop and, and things like that, where they can have a lot of working capital, you know, that, that could be, you know, a month's payroll for, you know, a, a, a still a small business. Um, where would you draw the line? Do you think $250,000, you know, especially in today's world is too low or do you think it's about right? This is a personal opinion. We're not going to, you know, hold you to it and, and lucky for you, you're not going to become the chairman of the FDIC tomorrow, uh, probably. But uh, just where would you where would you where would you put it? No, that's that's an excellent question. I mean, there are, there are many cases in which you know people might have you know just sold their house, for instance, and have a lot of cash temporarily uh, on their account. For instance, that's one possibility. Or or you know they could have uh, withdrawn their savings from the stock market because they are afraid of the current volatility. Or you know there, there are many reasons why, you know, some people might have a lot of cash on their deposit account. And, and you know, even rich people have a right to have a big deposit account if they want to. It doesn't mean it's, it's right if they lose all their money uh, in the bank. So, of course, I think in general, if you are the chairman of the FDIC, you know, ex post, it's, it's too late. You could even make the case that, you know, it's the responsibility. If, if you think it's the responsibility of the regulatory sector to ensure that banks are safe, I think it's actually even fair that ex post, if the regulatory sector did not do its job and that a bank that should not have failed ends up failing, I think it's right that the public sector pays for the damage, basically, and says, you know, basically the FDIC should say, well, look, I'm sorry, you know, we, we, we did not do our job properly with this bank. It was not supervised as it should have been. Because of this, there are huge losses for a lot of creditors. This should not have happened, and so we are going to reimburse those losses. I mean, you could make this argument, this would be a kind of a, a moral argument, if you want, for being very generous with the creditors exposed. It depends a lot on, you know, what you told them ex ante. And my feeling is that, indeed, you know, the regulators have told us for, you know, a lot of years that everything was under control, that now everything was re-regulated, everything was safe. You create this perception of safety, then, you know, it's not really surprising that, um, that depositors, you know, don't pay a lot of attention on where they put their money, and, and then you have this type of, of issues. So again, you know, I think exposed, you have to be very generous with the, the depositors and the creditors who lost money. It's, it's very difficult to do, uh, to do anything else, but that's still a big problem. I think then what you should do is also to explain how you are going to ensure that this does not happen again in the future, to uh, ensure that, you know, from... From now on, those risks will not be missed, that supervision is going to be improved, and so on. What's also very special with the case of the FDIC, so that's a really a specificity of the U.S. Uh, banking system, is that they have multiple banking supervision authorities. And so the FDIC is also the banking supervisor of many banks uh, in the U.S. Interestingly, they were not the banking supervisor of SVB. So SVB was supervised by the, the California State Supervisor and the Federal Reserve, but not the FDIC. So this also means that the, FC, the FDIC is basically paying the bill for the failure of other supervisors in supervising uh, SVB adequately. And with the FDIC specifically, a lot of people are concerned uh, now that, um, you know, they have made the decision, obviously, to make sure that everyone's uh, deposits are secure, even extremely large deposits, uh, which is going to be a significant bill. Uh, and people are afraid that, you know, it's ultimately the taxpayer that's going to, to foot that bill. Um, is that correct? Or uh, can you speak to how the FDIC actually makes its money to, uh, you know, to pay out in situations like this? Right. So the way the FDIC works in principle is that it ensures 
all the deposits and well all the insured deposits and it collects a premium from the banks for insuring those deposits and then you know the banks implicitly are, ba are basically charging their customers for this okay and so in good years when you don't have bank failures you accumulate money in the fund of the FDIC and then when there is a bank failure you use this money basically to reimburse the depositors okay so it's really an insurance mechanism it's very much what an insurance company uh, would do now the problem is that in some cases it could be that you know the money in the fund is not enough to reimburse all the depositors or maybe it's not enough to reimburse them like credibly in the savings and loans crisis in the 80s which i mentioned before there was a deposit insurance fund which was called the FSLIC and actually the losses were so massive that the FSLIC did not have enough money to reimburse everyone and it had to ask money from Congress to reimburse the depositors and it was a massive bill for the taxpayers, okay? So in this case, we are not at all in this situation. The, the FDIC has enough money to reimburse the, the depositors of, uh, of SVB, but still it means their fund is going to be deplete, depleted and so they will need, you know, to replenish the fund. The only way to do that is to increase uh, deposit insurance premia and then, you know, what a lot of people are complaining about is that, well, these premia are going to be paid by the other banks. And so here you create a new moral hazard issue, which is that if you are a reckless bank and you take too much risk, your depositors are going to be repaid by the FDIC. In order to pay for this, the FDIC is going to increase deposit insurance premia on the surviving banks. Okay. So you get, you give basically an incentive for the banks to be exposed to the same risk because, you know, if you are more cautious, actually, you will have to pay for the banks that were more reckless, okay? And so it's something that is also well understood nowadays in uh, in the economics of banking. It's sometimes called the too many to fail problem that, you know, in such a situation, you are giving banks incentives to all be exposed to the same risk. Interest rate risk is a good example because if we all invest a lot in bonds, we all stand to lose together when interest rates increase and we are kind of, you know, forcing collectively the central bank to not increase rates too much or to, you know, to bail us out if, uh, if losses accumulate uh, too much. So I would be a bit worried about this type of phenomenon. Uh, one last thing is that you know, there is an interesting theory in banking, which is called the last bank standing effect. So it's the idea that if there is a banking crisis and you know, some banks are doing very poorly, if there are some other banks that were more cautious, they will be you know, in good health during this crisis. And so they can benefit from that because maybe they will be able to uh, take over the failing banks at a huge discount or to buy assets at fire sale prices and so on. So there is a kind of a natural market incentive to, uh, you know, to not follow the bets of others and to be a bit more cautious and so on. This type of things that the FDIC is doing, it goes in the other direction. It gives you an incentive to be exposed to exactly the same risks as others. Now, this being said, you know, we are talking probably about relatively uh, small amounts. It's not like we are going to give massive incentives for banks to all be exposed to the same risk. But still, you know, it's not something that goes in the right uh, direction. I think that in general, giving the impression that cautious banks are going to pay for reckless banks, that's not a very good idea, okay? Because this really uh, discourages uh, bank managers from being cautious. Now, I want to um, look at a, a go sort of bigger picture than just the FDIC and look more broadly at the role of banks in an economy. And there's a reason that um, bank failures get so much more news than just a regular business failing. And that's because obviously they, um, you know, uh, control the livelihoods of thousands of other businesses and individuals uh, as well as, you know, allocating capital to, to make our economy function. Um, now, in this particular case, there is an argument to be made that perhaps uh, SVB was overregulated, on uh, especially on their uh, on their loan side, which forced them to to take on you know these low yielding assets that maybe they wouldn't have uh, liked to have held if there was uh, better options for them to to maybe loan out money to. High risk institutions, which were, you know, their their bread and butter client, uh, especially you know these these startups and tech companies and venture capital firms that they they did a lot of business with. Uh, do you think there's any merit to the sense that overregulation 
can hurt the banking sector and by extension the economy just as much as under regulation right so okay well you know it could become even a philosophical debate about you know how much public sector involvement do you want in the in the economy and so on i'm i'm not sure the debate is really between under regulation and over regulation i think there are clear reasons why we need banks to be regulated and probably strongly regulated and so this has to do with this possibility of bank runs then the fact that you have to insure deposits once you insure deposits you create all kinds of bad incentives and so you need tools to correct those bad incentives and so that's basically what banking regulation should do okay so i think it's natural in an economy that if you want you know banks that do maturity transformation so they take deposits and they invest in loans you need to have a very stringent regulatory framework now this being said uh, i think there is also you know the possibility that it's not the amount of regulation that is the problem it's the types of regulations we have okay and I think you know some of the things we are saying we are we are seeing now are actually let's say you know regulatory hiccups uh, that have been known for a very very long time. So I think it's just that some aspects of the regulation were not properly designed, partly because of you know those things being just very complicated, partly because of bank lobbying, partly sometimes because of regulators maybe being a bit captured by the industry and so on. There could be many reasons, but just to give you some examples, right? So one of the main novelties of Basel III is, is liquidity regulation, okay? So was one of the main novelties of Basel III. The point of liquidity regulation is, is precisely to avoid, you know, this type of, of failure, this type of bank run. Now, you know, what does banking regulation, what does liquidity regulation tell you when you look at the detail of the rules? Well, when you look at the detail of the rules, Liquidity regulation is very happy when you have a lot of deposits and very happy when you have a lot of bonds. Well, guess what? This is exactly the reason why SVB failed. So it seems to me that this was not a very, very good idea, actually, uh, to do that. It's because at the same time as you, know, you have this liquidity risk, you also have this interest rate risk. And the persons you know, thinking about liquidity regulation did not think about liquidity risk at the same time. Okay, So it's just complicated to think about both. The interest rate risk, this is also, you know, bread and butter banking regulation, okay? So if you're a banking regulator, you know, this mismatch between liabilities and assets and what happens when interest rates increase, this is one of the first things you should be concerned about, okay? Now, how is this dealt with in the current regulatory framework? Well, in the current regulatory framework, we focus a lot on what we call Pillar one, which is, you know, all the capital requirements that are supposed to cover for market risk, for credit risk, and for operational risk. Interestingly, they are not supposed to cover for interest rate risk. Okay. Interest rate risk is also covered by regulation, but under pillar two. So basically, what the supervisors do in their, you know, day to day interaction with the banks, they, they check in a much more uh, opaque way what the bank is doing. They run stress tests. They try to see uh, whether uh, an increase in interest rates would be a problem for the bank and so on. In general, this is done well by, you know, good supervision authorities. They do this job and they do it well and they check that banks are not too exposed to interest rate risk. One big issue is that, well, you know, this is good as long as you trust the banking supervisor. And I think what we are seeing right now is, is people realizing, well, you know, we were trusting all these supervision authorities to check interest rate risk and to make sure that banks were not too exposed or had enough capital to, um, to cover this type of risk, okay? And now the issue is that, well, we see one bank failing because of this. And so this really, you know, puts into question how much we should trust that this is actually done correctly. And because frankly, we have no idea because all of this is pillar two. This is things that only the banks and the supervisors can see if you are an outsider, if you are an investor, well, you know, if you trust the supervisor, you think, okay, well, you know, I trust that they are doing a good job at regulating interest rate risk. If you see a couple of bank failures, you might lose your trust in the supervisor. And then you will think, well, you know, I can, the only proof I have that this is done correctly is the word of the supervisor. So if now I'm losing my trust, maybe actually this is not supervised at all. And now I should really revise my expectations about how safe the banking system is. And I think that to some extent, you know, this is one thing that explains 
this drop, you know, in uh, stock prices of many banks that we see that whenever you see a risk like this that materializes and it seems, you know, easy, you would think, well, the supervisors should have seen this coming and they did not. And so then, you know, you lose, you have a loss of, of reputation, basically, of the supervision authority. And that's bad for all the banks that are supervised because implicitly they rely a lot on the fact that people trust the regulatory framework. And so a loss of trust in the regulatory framework is one of the worst things that can happen in banking, I think. Now, we've spoken a lot about the role of uh, you know, government-appointed supervisors, semi-government organizations, the role of the Fed, a lot of regulators, a lot of um, oversight into uh, the industry. And there's a good reason for that. You know, effectively, banks are almost providing a public service, a you know, safe place, uh, hypothetically, to keep your money. And also, uh, you know, being there to, to lend that money and, and allocate capital so that uh, projects get off the ground. And, you know, that's the foundation of, uh, of our economy. If you have a fantastic idea for a, for a business, but you don't have the capital to, um, to build that business, you can hypothetically go to the bank and, and get a loan and, and make that a reality. And that makes the economy uh, a wealthier place while, uh, you know, also uh, giving the bank some interest and, and everyone uh, is better off for that, that system being in place. Now, with so much oversight and so much invested into uh, making sure that these private institutions are filling that role adequately, do you think there's an argument or even perhaps it would be easier um, to introduce a bank that's just run by the government, uh, a bank where you know, the regulators are uh, effectively the management and they can be assured of it? And, and given that it is a a uh, government institution has, you know, obviously potentially a lot more confidence in being able to do these roles that are absolutely critical to the function of the economy. Uh, you know, without these, you know, moral hazards, profit motives, um, you know, where they have to toss up, uh, am I going to, to do what's right by the broader economy or do what's right by my shareholders? And sometimes mm-hmm. they're not always the same thing. What are, what are your thoughts on on something like that? Right. Okay. So that's about... The question is about whether banks should be, we should have profit-motivated banks or should we have more like, you know, public banks or, or banks with a more, you know, uh, with, with different motives than, than profit maximization. Um, so I have a very French perspective on this, which is that actually until the mid-80s in France, our entire banking system was public. I can tell you it did not work very well either. So um, I'm not sure it would be such a good idea to have a lot of, of public banks. In general, in economics, you know, we try to contrast, you know, market failures, so, you know, private market participants, because they want, you know, to maximize their utility or their profit and so on. They neglect externalities, they neglect all kinds of things that are important, and this leads to issues like a banking crisis, for instance. But then you also have government failures in which, well, you know, government officials and the people running the banks on behalf of the government, the civil servants who will do that, they also have their own incentives. They also have, you know, their own problems, their own, their own career concerns, and they are not always aligned with the public good either, right? So the question is basically how much, you know, how big are the, um, how big are the market failures relative to the government failures? In Europe, we still have a lot of banks that are public or, or semi-public. There is a lot of research on those, actually, and, and you know, it shows that government failures are, are also pretty big. I mean, these banks are also going to face a lot of political pressure. They are going to help local politicians being re-elected by lending to, you know, companies that provide employment in a certain region in which the, the re-election is not, uh, is going to be difficult and so on and so on. So there are also all kinds of problems uh, with those banks. So I think, I mean, the, um, I think the consensus, but, but, you know, this is really an empirical question. So, so this is not, uh, uh, this should vary across countries across, over time and so on, but I think the consensus we had, at least until now, was that the best model is to have private banks, but you regulate them in such a way that they don't take too much risk, that the shareholders have a lot of money to lose if the bank is too reckless. And so at the same time, you know, because of the profit motive, the banks have an incentive to lend to the most profitable companies, to those with the best projects, and so on and so on. And because the shareholders have a lot of money to lose, they don't want to be too reckless and, and lend to companies that are extremely risky and so on, right? So that's, that, that's more or less the consensus. 
This being said, uh, there are, I think, the business model of banks in general, and you know the the, the case for having a lot of financial intermediation being done by banks, I think this case is, is getting weaker over time. And the, the fundamental business model of banks is a bit less clear today uh, than it used to be. So, you know, it used to be the case that maturity transformation was something very important for the economy, that a lot of the savings were in the form of small retail deposits. And you wanted to use these savings to finance companies. So you needed to have uh, banks, basically, right? Nowadays, we have much more economic inequality. So, you know, maybe we can have richer people just investing into funds and those funds are going to finance the companies. And so there is much less scope for, you know, collecting small deposits in order to finance uh, new companies. So that's a possibility. Maybe maturity transformation is less important today than it was. Also, banks, you know, do a lot of activities combined. Historically, this was a good idea because you needed to have a one-stop shop, you know, to have a single bank advisor to do a lot of things. Nowadays, with the internet, you can break, you know, the banking services into many different subcomponents. And so you don't need maybe to have the same bank doing everything for you. You could have, you know, someone doing uh, your investments, someone you borrow from, someone you take your deposits and so on and so on. All this could be done sometimes by fintech, sometimes by a bank and so on. And so there could be many different intermediaries. So I think there are many reasons why maybe society could rely less on banks uh, today than, than, than it used to. And that's because of technological innovations, because of changes in the economy, in the supply and demand of credit and so on and so on for macroeconomic reasons, let's say. That point you made about uh, maturity transformation, uh, that's really fascinating. I had never, um, you know, even considered it. And obviously, normally, uh, we consider the rise in inequality as a, you know, obviously a bad thing, but um, that is true, that obviously, uh, very, very wealthy people have a lot more, you know, on average, excess cash that they, they don't need uh, urgently. Um, thanks, thanks for that insight. Now, the final question, um, and I hate, to, I hate to make an economist try and predict the future because we're notoriously terrible at it. In fact, I make a joke about it. Nobody can predict the future, least of all economists. I think I say it in literally every video I make, um, but I'm going to do it anyway. So 1873, 1893, uh, what is it? 1907, 1929, 1986, 2008, all sort of some of the, the biggest recessions or depressions that we've had in the past sort of 200 years, uh, effectively sort of since modern finance was created as it is today. Um, all of them, you know, we see uh, very, very bad for the uh, wider economy and all of them were uh, kicked off by some form of bank failure. We now have, you know, three banks that have failed um, so far and their total assets under management are larger than the, uh, or almost equal to the uh, total assets under management of the, the bank failures in the first year of the GFC. Do you see us getting out of this problem without a recession? And why would it be different this time? Okay, that's, that's indeed a very tough question you are asking. So I'm not sure I thank you for it. Uh, okay, but that's, that's an excellent question. So I think in general, what was very special about the GFC is that banks started this crisis with you know, very, very low uh, capitalization for a number of reasons. And now, you know, we are in a very different situation. So banks, you know, start, you know, even since COVID crisis, actually, even with, when COVID started, we were very, very lucky that banks started this crisis with a lot of capital, actually. And so they, they started in a much better position than what happened during the GFC. Um, so for the banks themselves, for the moment, at least, I'm not extremely worried. I mean, if interest rates keep increasing a lot because we cannot rein in inflation, that might be a different story. But, you know, given, you know, market expectations right now and, and, and what we see, I'm not too worried about that. Maybe one, one big worry and one thing which is very different from the starting point of the, the global financial crisis is that the levels of, of sovereign debt or public debt are very different. And so both in the US, in Europe, in many countries, the levels of public debt are huge, much bigger than what we had at the beginning um, of the financial crisis. And, and so that makes a big difference because this means that you know now a lot of countries are going to struggle if interest rates 
increased too much. You know, in, in Europe in particular, the, the big issue was not so much, you know, the subprime related crisis. It was the, uh, the euro area sovereign debt crisis later, okay, in which the banks had a lot of holdings of sovereign debt and, and people started questioning, you know, the value, the credit risk, basically, of, uh, of several uh, European sovereigns. And so that really triggered a big crisis with a kind of a feedback loop between the banks and the governments. And so for me, the worrying scenario would be a repeat of that kind of things with, with the extra difficulty that the central bank is now in a very bad position where, you know, if you want to help the governments, which you are not supposed to do, you have to keep interest rates low. But if you keep interest rates low, you are going to generate big inflation expectations. And so that's going to be an economic mess and so on and so on. So to me, the, the difficulty is more on the side of, of public debt and the macroeconomics, you could imagine, you know, a kind of uh, apocalyptic scenario in which, you know, you start having a big issue on that front. This uh, actually triggers a banking crisis, which only reinforces the problem. Okay. Again, I think this is really, you know, looking at the most apocalyptic scenario I can think of. I don't think this is at all the most likely thing uh, right now. But, you know, if I had to monitor what's going on and see, you know, where could we see, you know, a big systemic crisis uh, starting? This is the type of things I would look at, basically. But it would more be an economic crisis kicking off a banking crisis rather than a banking crisis kicking off an economic crisis. Exactly. You put it much more concisely than I did. <laughs> uh, well, thank you. And now I know I said that was the, um, the last question, but um, I, I've got to ask um, your opinion on... Um, just just one last thing, which is, do you think perhaps uh, even this could be a, a bit of a, a blessing in disguise uh, for central banks around the world, which is now they have an excuse, uh, oh, you know, there's a, bit of, there's a bit of market panic, you know, we're, we're going to see how this plays out, we're going to put interest rates on hold, um, and potentially, you know, it's even sending a message to consumers that, uh, you know, um, times are uncertain, you know, maybe stop spending so much money and... Uh, hold on to your pennies worth, Trudel, obviously, uh, counterinflation as well. So maybe it could, uh, you know, sort of help them achieve their goal of, of, of reigning in inflation, uh, if mm. nothing else than the, the fear it causes. Right. Um, that's possible. So I think the, the big difficulty of central banking is that this is all about managing, you know, expectations of, of market participants, basically. And so this is an art, you know, as well as, well as a science. Uh, so the scenario you just described is possible, okay? It could be that people will expect, you know, a banking crisis. Maybe they will expect that because of this, there will be uh, much less uh, growth in the economy in the first place. This is going to reduce the pressure on prices. So inflation risk is lower and we don't have to increase rate, interest rates as much, which is going to help uh, governments, to help banks and so on and so on, for instance, right? So that's one possibility. This optimistic scenario, so to speak, still relies on people expecting a recession happening uh, because of this, right? So it's not as optimistic. The other possibility could be that, well, you know, it's always difficult for the central bank to be credible about uh, fighting inflation. A lot of people are not convinced to what extent, you know, the Fed, the ECB and other central banks are really serious about this. So one more pessimistic scenario could be a lot of investors thinking, well, exactly like you just said, thinking, oh, now they have an excuse to not increase interest rates. So surely, you know, they are going to stop hiking them. And so inflation is going to be completely out of control. Because of this, you know, I ask for much higher interest rates and so on and so on. And then inflation expectations are going to simply, um, to simply build up. Okay, So you could also build a very pessimistic scenario. It all depends on how this is interpreted by market participants and how they form their inflation expectations which is something that is, you know, completely self-fulfilling and, and could go uh, either way. And so that's going to depend a lot on how central banks are able to communicate about this, to be credible about their strategy. Uh, so all these things that are really the art of the central banker and that become very, very important in a time, uh, in a time of crisis. John Edward, thank you for coming on the show. Um, this was incredibly insightful and we're very lucky to have uh, your knowledge here and uh, a time where everyone is really just trying to get a grasp of what is going on. Thank you, Michael. It was a great pleasure already. 
likewise. Thank you. Thank you very much.